This is episode 75 of the Angry Tech News Podcast for Tuesday, September 5th, 2023. This is the Angry Tech News Podcast at angrytechnews.com. Now your host, the Angry Programmer with a mic, Ryan Bemrose. Oh, man, it has been a week. Uh, I could argue a long one. It's been, uh, well, about 168 hours last I checked, but who's counting? I'll spare you the details of what I had to deal with this week. Uh, I could tell you, but then I'd have to kill you. Besides, that's pretty inappropriate for this show. That's not what you're here for. If you really want to hear about all the stupid crap that I had to deal with over the last seven days, listen to this week's Grumpy Old Ben, because over there we call that show content. Let's start with some data breaches, shall we? The University of Michigan was hit by a cybersecurity incident last week, resulting in the entire school's internet being shut down starting on the 27th, a week ago last Sunday, and going on until last Wednesday. The university is not disclosing the details of the incident other than to call it a, quote, significant security threat and a targeted attack saying that the investigation is ongoing. However, what we can tell you is it was bad enough for them to shut down all internet on campus for four days. So there's that. I personally speculate that this caused all kinds of disruption, especially since it happened during the first few days of fall semester, but I'm not in Michigan and I couldn't find an article confirming as such. So let's just assume that it did. Clothing retailer Forever 21 suffered a data breach earlier this year, The hack, which started in January 2023, went on for a three-month period, during which an attacker was able to download data from Forever 21's internal computer systems. The breach included personal information from customers and current and former employees, including, in some cases, name, address, uh, the usual uh, social security number. Is that even private? Does anybody think SSN is private? Uh... It involved 539,000 people. More than half a million people were impacted, which is what made this one particularly wow. Uh, In a statement, the company now assures us that the breach has ended and that, quote, Forever 21 has taken steps to ensure that the unauthorized third party no longer has access to the data. This is, of course, an impossible claim to make, considering there's absolutely no way to verify that the attacker didn't save or upload a backup somewhere, But then again, you make claims like this to reassure shareholders and naive customers, not skeptical security engineers. So they have to make that claim in a statement. Anyway, the company has refused to give any further details. If I were to speculate, the wording makes it sound like they paid off the hacker. But again, I'm not going to speculate. I'm going to leave that up to you, ATN's producers. Callaway, the seller of golf equipment, also suffered a data breach as a result of a, quote, IT system incident from August 1st. The company sent out a letter on August 29th to impacted customers who purchased from the Callaway, Odyssey, and Ogeo brands of sports gear. What was compromised in this one? They actually gave a list. Full name, shipping address, email, phone number, order history, account password, and answer to security questions. The company is forcing a password reset on all of its users, which, if you are a Callaway customer, will impact you, I suppose, the next time you go to buy a putter or something. 
Of course, maybe it won't. If you're anything like me, the first place you go on any retail site that requires an account to log in is the password recovery page because it's been five years since I last gave a thought to this account. Honestly, I can't fault dudes named Ben for these incidents. Um, okay, I can a little. Uh, some of you guys in IT are pretty damn lax in your security. You need to stop making it easy for the hackers. But no amount of IT work is going to make it impossible, especially when half the breaches come from vulnerabilities in some vendor package that more often than not was foisted on the poor IT dude by some overzealous cost-conscious CFO. Now, the problem here is not that the data was breached, though. Frankly, in today's tech world, that's inevitable. The problem is all of the data was collected in the first place. The problem is that it's sitting on some corporate hard drive just waiting to be breached. Why the hell does a t-shirt shop or the people who sold golf clubs need to know and keep my home address, phone number, and email? Okay, well, if I'm ordering online, they need to know where to ship it, but they don't need to store that information forever, just waiting for some hacker to come along and exfiltrate a database, which has no reason to exist in the first place. You know, except, of course, some vague corporate greed thing on the part of a CEO who was told in some seminar that data is an asset and you should exploit your customers to the maximum amount you can. As a consumer, the best way to protect against this is to not put your information into these databases in the first place. Anything a company does not absolutely need in order to fulfill your order, you don't give them. Usually what they need is a method of payment, some maybe some contact info and a shipping address. Nothing more. They don't need your date of birth. They don't need to know. Uh, if they ask for more data, don't supply more data. If they demand more data, like, you know, if it's a form that won't submit without, give them garbage data, give them crap, give them the random characters, anything that is, pollute the database, make the database less useful, remove the financial incentive for them to keep collecting this stuff. A special note is the security question part of, of the breach. Did you know that there are people out there who when asked for their mother's maiden name or the name of their first pet, will actually tell the truth? People, this is a free-form field. From a security perspective, it's nothing more than a place to enter a backup password. What's my dog's name? A gimpy barbells. What's my elementary school? Correct horse battery staple. What's my mom's maiden name? GFYTK9$73BANG. Yeah, weird family, I know. They changed it when they immigrated to America. Another option to protect yourself, and I know this is really hard for most people, is to walk away from the transaction. Go to the competition across the virtual street, someone who doesn't trade on your privacy just so it can be breached. At this point, constant data breaches are just a cost of doing business to most of these companies, and they're going to keep doing it as long as you keep enabling them. From the missing the point department. For as long as there have been large corporate offices, there has been a war raging on inside of those halls. A war on productivity. The sides, middle management versus the people who get stuff done. The main weapon, meetings. Those unproductive blocks of time plonked down arbitrarily into the middle of an otherwise productive day of getting work done. Yeah, okay, this is a pretty one-sided view. I'm sure that the manager has a good reason for interrupting a workflow with yet another meeting. But I was never a manager. I was always on the side of the guy whose entire mental framework was shattered by the meeting reminder day in and day out. So maybe I'm bitter. Well, some engineers at Google have decided to solve this problem once and for all using technology. 
Have they built a technology to finally make managers stop and think if this meeting is really all that important and if everyone here has to attend? No, of course not. Google has instead invented an AI that can go to the meeting for you. A new feature in Google Meet, uh, which is a video chat service, I guess. I, yeah, I had to look it up. Will uh, or allows integration with Google Duet, one of their AI offerings. And yeah, I had to look it up. Will make meetings less fatiguing and more fulfilling by asking the AI to, quote, attend for me. The AI will tune into the virtual meeting, listening and taking notes-ish, I guess, and then recap the meeting for you afterward. A similar feature, uh, summary so far, will allow latecomers to come up to speed on what was missed at the beginning of the meeting. The AI will also display an image of your face to the other participants uh, in order to, I guess, make it look like you're at the meeting. Although the article doesn't say whether or not the AI will animate that face, respond to questions, or agree to more work on your behalf. I can't help but think that the engineers who came up with this are missing the point. Any corporate meeting that can be summarized into a one-page recap by an AI is a meeting that shouldn't have been a meeting at all. It should have been a memo, an email, a one-page summary recap that should have been just sent to everybody to read when they can, rather than forcing a synchronous waste of time onto everyone involved. Any meeting for which your attendance is actually needed, say, one in which you're a participant and not just a fly on the wall, is a meeting that an AI can't just recap for you because the AI isn't you and is not going to be able to say the things that you say, at least not yet. So. The only meetings that this AI can help with are the meetings that shouldn't have happened. The meetings that are yet another example of pointless corporate inefficiency so that a middle manager can justify his or her existence in the company by forcing everyone to pay attention uh, for an hour out of their day. Which in my corporate experience is most of the meetings if I'm honest, so maybe it's not missing the point at all. And finally, from the This is NTP department, I want to tell you about a security feature in Windows, one that Microsoft added to the operating system back in 2016 in order to make Windows more secure. The story starts with a hole in the Windows cryptography threat model. Nearly everything in cryptography relies on the computer knowing accurately what the current time is. A computer needs power to keep time. No electricity means that the clock doesn't run, which makes for a security hole where an attacker who can cut off power to the clock can break the OS's encryption. Of course, this isn't as easy as unplugging the machine or removing the main batteries. Computer clocks have had battery backups forever, but those can fail. Uh, an attacker can remove the CMOS battery if they, knew, if they even know where it is, which means an attacker, what, over 35, but whatever. So engineers, they can fail, so engineers have to plan for it. Now, the problem of automatically setting the time in an internet connected computer is a solved problem. The network time protocol invented in 1985 allows a machine to ask another machine on the internet. Hey, what time is it? By the way, for uh, for an in-depth comparison of four different methods of setting a clock, one of which is NTP, uh, go listen to angry tech news number nine, where I, in lieu of, of complaining about, daylight saving time, I instead gave some very awesome instructions about how clocks are set. But anyway, now NTP is good enough for most things in an OS. It is usually accurate and reliable enough to timestamp logs, display a weather app, you know, the kind of things people care about, whatever, to, to put the automatic timestamp on an email. But it's not good enough for cryptography because as the engineers at Microsoft reasoned, what if an NTP server is wrong? 
What if it's lying to you? What if an attacker got a hold of your NTP server and is feeding you bad data? I mean, sure, NTP is usually accurate, but things like usually don't play well when it comes to a security boundary. The only thing that works as a security boundary is a logical certainty. So the engineers in the crypto team see this hole in their threat model, and they know that if the system time is off, all kinds of things break in cryptography and attackers can kind of eat your machine. So they look for ways to mitigate the problem. Now, there's no way to be certain on the internet that a remote machine is not lying to you, but you can compare notes from a lot of remote machines and you can get a pretty good idea at least, you know, whether or not at least whether they all agree. And it's, it's often a good assumption that if, you know, a hundred machines all say the same thing and one machine says something different, then only one of those is lying. Yeah. Well, they start looking around for sources of time data that they can tap into in order to double check NTP again, or, or yeah. sources of time data that they can tap into to double check NTP against, uh, presumably a source of time data that doesn't rely on those same NTP servers. They came upon the idea of using TLS packets, transport layer security, TLS. Uh, it's the encryption layer that, lies behind the little padlock icon in every HTTPS site. Every time the computer does a secure HTTPS handshake, the headers in the TLS protocol contain a timestamp field, which in theory, according to the protocol, contains the current time on the remote server when the packet was encrypted. The computer is constantly exchanging HTTPS connections with servers all over the world. Every modern computer does it. Heck, on Windows, even when the user isn't doing anything, there's dozens of services constantly phoning home in the average PC. It's perfect for the cryptographers. Thus was born the Windows Secure Time Seeding feature, or STS. The STS service sits back on your Windows 10 and Windows 11 computer, watching TLS packets go back and forth and pulling the timestamps out. It then does a bunch of heuristics based on the hop length and the packet lifetimes and ultimately decides based on skip logic and fuzzy lookup tables, whether or not the system time as set by NTP has been tampered with. If the STS determines that it has, it resets the system time to the correct time so as to head off any time-based encryption attacks. On paper, it all sounds pretty like a pretty cool feature, but here's the problem. The server timestamp field, which has been in the protocol since SSL 1.0, is not required by most the most common encryption schemes. Therefore, TLS implementations can put any garbage they want into the timestamps, and the HTTPS packets will still flow, because the data in that field is not usually checked, which means that the field is not well tested, which means that it's not always faithfully implemented. And many implementations do just that. Uh, some of them will fill... fill the timestamp field was zeros, which means that the time on every SSL packet is now epoch, um, you know, what, January 1970. Uh, some implementations uh, will use random bits to fill the field. For example, OpenSSL does, which is a feature added to the library in 2014 in order to limit fingerprinting. It just dumps random data into that timestamp field sometimes, if you configure it. Uh, for a while, Windows own implementation adjusted the timestamp for daylight saving time, which meant that for half of the year, the windows time was an hour off in the SSL packets, uh, TLS packets, sorry, SSL TLS. They're almost the same thing. TLS is newer. I'm just not using the correct one. Anyway, 
Testing the feature inside of Microsoft, you'd never spot these issues amidst a sea of Windows machines, all with exactly the same TLS implementation, most of which got their time from the enterprise domain server anyway, which means they all generally agree on the time, they're off by a few milliseconds here and there, and the TLS implementation is always the same. But out on the real internet, that's not even the majority. And there's the problem. The STS feature was written with the assumption that TLS packets had accurate timestamps, and it turns out that assumption is wrong, and it's wreaking havoc on the internet. A handful of bug reports pop up, usually a couple bugs per month, so okay, havoc might be overstated, unless this happens to your computer, because then it's an issue, but a handful of bug reports pop up, usually a couple per month, of Windows Secure Time arbitrarily changing the system time to something that is not just wrong, but sometimes wildly wrong. Uh, there have been reports ten, changing the time to 10 hours in the future, 30 hours in the past. Uh, occasionally, the system time would mysteriously be off by several weeks. In one report, the, the STS set the system time to the year 2159. And this is a problem for most other applications, not just cryptography. Database journaling, API calls, all sorts of things get messed up when the system clock is out of sync. If this happens to a web server, it can take your whole site down. And it can be a real pain to diagnose, especially when, in at least one report, the log files needed to diagnose the problem were being automatically and instantly purged as soon as they were written because the system time saw them as several months old. Microsoft is aware of the problem and assures us that this STS issue happens infrequently and assures us that the problems are rare. But as I pointed out a few minutes ago, rare is not the same as never. Or as one of the devs that I used to work with was very fond of saying, in computing, a one in a million chance means next Tuesday. Several people whom Ars Technica interviewed urged anyone who administers a Windows server to disable STS and rely instead on your organization's internal NTP server for time synchronization. Your organization does have an internal stratum one NTP server, doesn't it? Angry thanks to Sharky for coming in this week with the show's only PayPal donation and to Baron of Rotterdam, Joel W memes, 1337, uh, who says leap boost to keep the tech news angry. Stacy, who says great show and Mr. Mister, who says so many tech horny shows, but few so angry, enjoy your niche before the other shows catch on. Uh, if you want to send a boostagram with a message, go get a podcast app from podcastapps.com and, uh, send, uh, so Bitcoin Satoshi's that way. Angry tech news is produced on the value for value model. We don't take sponsors. We don't play ads and we do not charge you to listen, but we are funded by your donations. If you received some value from listening to this show, please send some value back. Go to angrytechnews.com and click on the donate button. Send what you think this episode was worth to you, whether it's $10, $50, or possibly just a new name for my dog. That's it for now. I'm Ryan Bemrose, the angry programmer with a mic. I'll be back next week with more Angry Tech News. This has been Angry Tech News with the angry programmer, Ryan Bemrose at angrytechnews.com Stay angry Stay angry Stay angry